0: So let us continue where we left off yesterday with the the Buddha's uh, first discourse or sermon, which focuses on the Four Noble Truths. But remembering that the Four Noble Truths are Uh, or the teaching on the Four Noble Truths is preceded by the Buddha's discovery or declaration of having awoken to a middle path that does not lead to dead ends. And this middle path is the the Eightfold Path that we've already mentioned a number of times And in what sense does it not lead to dead ends? Usually, this is translated as does not lead to extremes. But the word in Pali um, is anta. Anta means an end or a limit. you can interpret that as meaning an extreme view, but that's not quite what the word is saying. Um, one of the classical translators, uh, I.B. Horner, translates it as "dead end," which I think is very which I think is probably the best translation. A path, remember, if we step back and consider what it means as a metaphor. Another metaphor. Metaphors everywhere. A path is something that um, leads you somewhere. A path is a trajectory that starts at a certain place and then culminates in a destination. And in most instances, once it gets to a destination, you can go on somewhere else. There's something open-ended about a path. A path is also something that brings you into situations, into landscapes that previously you did not know. There's something about a path that opens you into what is unknown for you, something new, something novel, something unfamiliar. (coughs) And the opposite of a path is um, an unter a dead end, a, a cul-de-sac in French, a bag's arse, literally. <laughs> <laughs> in other words, <laughs> you, go, you, you, can't, you, you hit up against something that blocks you. Now we've already had this discussion in Shada's talk a couple of nights ago of the hindrances. Hindrances basically are things that block your path. And that, I think, is why the term is chosen, because it does suggest very much that you're, you're, you're moving along, living your life, and suddenly something gets in the way. It may be a physical obstruction. It might be a mental obstruction. But in either case, we suddenly find ourselves up against a wall, and we don't seem to be able to make any headway we feel stuck so a middle way or the middle way the Buddha has awoken to is one that does not lead to situations in which we get stuck there's something dynamic and open about it and also therefore something intrinsically freeing and liberating in the very act of walking along it A path, as we know from walking on paths in these hills for example, once one gets into one's stride, one is able to move without impediment. One is able to move freely. So freedom therefore is not the destination. Freedom is actually implicit within the very notion of a path itself. Yet, as we might walk around the hills here, we might suddenly see a rattlesnake lying across the path, or a tree has come down, or the path has eroded, and there's been a little landslide, and it's slipped away, and there's a gap, and suddenly we're stuck. And that is a metaphor, I think, that we can probably all appreciate from our practice, not only of meditation, but our practice of, say, service, Or working in the world. We keep on hitting up against obstacles and the practice in a way is to find whatever is the appropriate way to circumvent or overcome that obstacle in order that we can resume the free movement of the path itself. Now the Buddha presents in this metaphor two particular dead ends. That are to be, are are, are those that the middle path avoids, and they are, I've translated them here as infatuation, we might translate that as, as, as indulgence, and on the other side, mortification or forms of self punishment. And both of these he describes as gamma in Pali, which literally means village. And I've translated it here as uncivilized. In other words even in this very early text we have a hint of the fact that the Buddha is uh, presenting this path as something that leads us away from a limited life and in his time a life in which one is simply bound to the cycles of the seasons and sustenance and subsistence to another kind of society, another civilization in which one is freed from those constraints to create a culture, to create a civilization but what do these two extremes or these two dead ends refer to for us today in the classical Buddhist texts infatuation refers to a life that is driven by a Endless pursuit for self-gratification, for pleasure, for uh, sensory enjoyment. Endlessly chasing after something and when it satisfied us, finding ourselves back at the same point of wanting something else, somewhat akin to what the advertising industry cranks up endlessly on our television screens today. Mortification, though, is usually described as adopting an extreme ascetic practice like perhaps those the Buddha himself experimented with, which you see even in India today, of of sadhus who will stand on one leg for 15 years or will stare at the sun or do some extreme behavior that, in a way, pushes them beyond their limits into a kind of transcendence. But the problem is, I doubt there's anybody in this room who once they've seen through the, the, the illusion of indulging the senses, I suspect many of us have got to some point in there, I doubt that our next thought will be, I think I'll go stand on one leg for 15 years. <coughs> or maybe stare at the sun. So in other words, these classic examples are not very helpful. Um, It's very easy to avoid those dead ends because we're not interested in them anyway. So we have to rethink this. One way of looking at it is that dead ends, I think, in our culture have become far more internalized, especially mortification, or let's translate it as self-punishment. If we can't get what we want through indulging our senses, very often we turn against ourselves. In our culture today we have young adolescents, for example, who quite literally cut themselves, uh, indulge in forms of self-harming. But I think also we can see it in, in, in forms of uh, pathology, maybe anorexia, bulimia. Um, or going on extreme dietary fads, Um, or basically doing something that um, deliberately causes us pain and thereby gives us a sense of gratification, a sense of relief, a sense of release. But I suspect also psychologically it's that negative self-image that we indulge very often nowadays. We start to be convinced that we are worthless, that we are inferior in some way and this I think very often tips us into what is so widespread in our culture, depression, anxiety, and to see these forms of behavior not simply as random pathologies that just have we happen to catch like we might catch a cold but actually the consequence of the kind of society we live in, a consequence of our own uh, failure perhaps to meet up to the expectations, the the false expectations that are projected by such a society as ours, and we turn negatively into uh, a kind of self-hatred. That's certainly one way we might understand this. So the Buddha's path is one that avoids that kind of dead-end as well as avoiding the other kind of dead-end which is the uh, excessive indulgence of sensory gratification and you know getting thrills and kicks. So it's actually quite difficult to find that middle way. It's not self-evident. But there are also passages in the canon itself Where the Buddha seems to be suggesting that it's not about either indulging the senses or doing some formal self-mortification. But he may, I think, be suggesting that we need to find a middle way between the extremes of worldliness, if you wish, and the extremes of religion. Here's a passage from the Udana, which is one of the minor texts, in other words, shorter texts, collections in the Pali Canon. It's Udana 6.8. I don't think I put it on your hander. This is the Buddha speaking. He says, What has been attained and what is still to be attained, both these are littered with dust for a frail person. Those who hold training as the essence, or who hold virtue and vow, pure livelihood, celibacy and service as the essence this is one dead end and those with such theories and such views as there's nothing wrong in indulging the senses this is the other dead end. Both these dead ends cause the cemeteries to grow, and the cemeteries cause wrong views to grow. By not penetrating these two dead ends, some hold back and some go too far. Now this seems to be a far more nuanced um, understanding of what the Buddha means by the two dead ends, the two extremes and likewise the middle way and I suspect for many of us, if we're not familiar with this passage, we might have been slightly surprised to have him list virtue and vow pure livelihood, celibacy and service as a dead end that's the last thing we expect the Buddha to say and that's why again, it's these often these anomalous passages which seem to be slightly out of kilter with the broad thrust of the canon, um, are so striking. And also, from a historical critical perspective of scholarship, are more likely to be original. For the simple reason, it's unlikely to have served the interests of anyone later in the day to have added them. I'm quite serious, that's a very important criterion. of of, of arriving at a sense of the probability of a passage being original. If the text says, and the Buddha is such an incredible being and light shines out of every pore of his skin and he speaks to the gods and he performs all these miracles, that clearly is in the interests of Buddhists who want to ratchet up the Buddha's supernatural abilities to impress people. A passage like this goes against orthodoxy, orthodox opinion, so who would have added it and why if it had been added would it have been preserved? I'm not going to get into all of the technicalities of this but I think that is a point worth considering. Now whether the Buddha literally means here that we should abandon virtue and vow and celibacy and so on, that I don't think is the case. But I do think what he's saying is that we can very easily get stuck in such things. They can very easily become dead ends. We can identify with them, we can become rather attached to them, as we can become attached to Buddhism, and in doing so we turn what may have been originally a very liberating experience into one in which we're just stuck. We just start going round and round and round, we become rather self-satisfied, self-conceited, that we're spiritual people, and that is a dead-end. So the Buddha recognizes that dead-ends are not just about extreme forms of behavior, but any kind of behavior. If we um, identify with it in a neurotic, or in an egotistic, or in a closed-minded way, becomes a dead end so the the middle way therefore um, is a constant kind of juggling act it's a constant uh, vigilance and wariness not to slip into uh, a position a fixed position of any kind a fixed view not to feel conceited that because we practice morality, therefore we are intrinsically good people and don't really have to think any further about it. That the world is constantly surprising us, the world is constantly demanding of us or calling from us an, an authentic response that neither, um, rec- neither leads us to just repeat some virtue that we believe to be good, nor does it require or demand that we somehow follow our first impulse, uh, our first gratifying idea. But somehow we have to steer this course, and I suspect in practice we'll keep blowing it. We'll keep slipping off this path, but in doing so that is what in a way teaches us what in fact this middle way might be. If we don't keep falling off it I think we can easily become complacent that life is such that we can never get everything right. We have to learn to accept imperfection, learn to accept our own blindness, our own weakness, and constantly stand up again and start afresh. And again whether that be in meditation, whether that be in our work, in the world, in our relationships, the same principle applies. So we have the idea, therefore, that this middle path avoids dead ends, at least we set that up as a kind of a framework for our life. But another characteristic of it that is perhaps worth noting is that the Buddha describes it as a noble path, an Arya Maga The Noble Eightfold Path. What does he mean by noble? Arya. This is a term that of course was current in his time and it had largely racial connotations. The Aryans referred to those people who had settled the northern Gangetic Plain, had had risen to dominance over the indigenous people and had a certain pride in, in, in their superiority. Now clearly the Buddha doesn't mean that. As is often the case, he takes a term that is current in the language of his culture and he gives it a radically new meaning. He, 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 he takes what here is a racial concept and turns it into an ethical concept. He does the same with the idea of karma, he does the same with the idea of the unconditioned, He doesn't abandon these terms. He he radically reinterprets them. So he's speaking here of um, a certain kind of nobility that is not about your birth or your social status, but rather about certain inner qualities of being that give you, as it were, a certain natural dignity And I think the whole process of engaging with the four truths, and I'm going to go on with this in the latter part of this talk, is very much a process of recovering or developing an inner dignity, a nobility. Now as as the basis for that, there's a concept the Buddha introduces only once in the canon, it's in the Anguttara Nikaya which is the Arya Gota the Arya Gota, Arya is noble, Gota or Gotra in Sanskrit means literally lineage or family. What does it mean therefore to become part of this noble lineage A person who has embodied the four truths or is embarking on the Eightfold Path is said to thereby come to belong to the noble lineage, the noble family. The Buddha lists four uh, characteristics of such a person. The first one is that they are content with their lodging. The second is that they're content with their food. The third is they are content with their housing. And the fourth is that they take delight in bhavana. That doesn't mean meditation, although that's part of it. But bhavana means cultivation. And it's the word the Buddha uses to describe how the Eightfold Path is realized. It is brought into being which is what bhavana literally means. It's realized in your life, in practice. Now I think there's something quite important being said here. The Buddha is defining being part of this noble lineage not in terms just of some spiritual qualities but in actually um, one's ability to uh, be content with a life of simplicity. Of course, this is uh, most express, m- m- most uh, 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 is most explicitly expressed in the life of the monk or the nun. But since we're not monks and nuns, what does this mean for us? The Buddha certainly doesn't say that the Arya Gota is only peopled by monastics. It's an idea that extends to the entire community. To be content with food, content with lodging, content with clothing. And again, perhaps the key word in some senses is content. We're satisfied provided that our basic needs are met. And this again was in, in very much in contrast to the sort of Uh, consumerist culture of our time that seeks to constantly generate discontent. Ours is a culture of discontent. If we weren't discontented we wouldn't want these things that we're being told we have to have. So contentment is at the very core, the very root of this practice and it is a challenge in our society to be able to live with enough but not too much, to be able to differentiate between what our needs are as opposed to our wants. The practice of fully knowing dukkha, I think, is integral to this ability to be content with little, to have enough, but not feel constantly this kind of gnawing lack that pushes us to have something we don't have and yet we feel that if we did have it, then our problems would be resolved. And the very idea of craving, which is the second noble truth, remember, the practice of letting go of craving, craving implies in its very nature, that we experience uh, a sense of lack in our lives. In other words, we only crave something that we don't have. You can't crave something that you've already got. And this is why I think it is important to preserve this translation. Sometimes it's translated as attachment, but that I think is wrong, because you can only be attached to things you already have. Craving implies that you feel deep down that something is missing. And you try to fill that hole, that lack, by getting what it is that you think will somehow fulfill you. But of course, whether it be sensory indulgence, whether it be uh, religious indulgence, in the end, it probably won't work you'll come back once more to feeling that you're missing something, you're lacking something. I think this is a very uh, important point, and it even has, I think, uh, social implications, namely that a community or a society that would be based on these principles would be one that would seek to provide and ensure the basic provisions of life housing, clothing, food, uh, sometimes in, the monas- in, in in other versions of this it also says medicine which is kind of a, a current issue <laughs> in this country, health care, that, uh, that, a, that a society that would be one that um, is committed to the sort of culture, the sort of way of life that the Buddha is implying, is one that would seek to provide those necessities for its members. Because without those basic necessities, it's difficult to commit oneself to the cultivation of a path. Because your energy, your worries, your thoughts are constantly going to be uh, overcome by anxieties about not having anywhere to live, anxieties about not having enough to eat, Anxieties about keeping warm in the winter. Anxieties about not having any medicine when you're sick. Those necessities need to be established. So the Buddha recognizes that it's not just about a practice is about letting go of attachments and so on. But it's about um, being content, being uh, being secure in having the basic provisions of a, a simple life. So again when we pick this apart we find that we're not talking just about something we can achieve in meditation but we're talking about um, a, a whole range of conditions that we must seek to fulfill in order that this practice can be effective, in order that we can embark on this kind of culture. Now the process that we started talking about yesterday that the the eightfold path both leads to and also is the result of remember the eightfold path this way of life leads us into the four truths uh, but the fourth truth is the eightfold path and someone pointed out to me that this is not so much a feedback loop but a feed forward loop which is a good point. Now, I don't fully understand the difference. Where's the text? Oh, no, I left it in my room. Never mind. Uh, I'll, bring it to this, I'll bring it tomorrow. Um, in other words, it's not, it's, not, it's not like a thermostat which somehow, somehow regulates backwards, but it's more like uterine contractions was the example that the person <laughs> used. It, but no, that's a good example. It's a giving birth to something. It's a giving birth. And... This, I feel, does describe very much this process of the four truths. The first one, which we spoke of yesterday, has very much to do with, uh, with, with shifting our priorities away from a sense you know, a sort of self-preoccupation and turning to the, uh, the fact Of our existence in this world, which the Buddha generically calls Dukkha. As I mentioned yesterday, this doesn't just mean pain. In fact, even happiness is Dukkha. Why? Because it doesn't last. Nothing that has arisen from circumstances or conditions is able to Uh, remain eternally. It will arise, it might last for a nice long period of time, and I hope very much that whatever happiness and well-being you experience in your lives lasts as long as possible. But I think if we're at all realistic, we recognize that these things come and go, often not because of any decision or action on our part, but because circumstances conspire for problems to arise, for things to be destroyed or undermined, that we need to recognise that this dukkha is built into the actual structure of the conditioned world. That. Um, <clears throat> There's no way that we can manipulate or organize or somehow construe the elements of the world in such a way that they will create the perfect situation for me. Unfortunately, other people are involved who have different desires. and Rarely are they the desires that are concerned with me being happy. (laughs) Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre memorably said, L'enfer, c'est les autres. Hell is other people. (laughs) (laughs) Now, um, I'm not sure I completely agree with that, but the point he's making is that we can never achieve the desires of our ego because we have to coexist with others who are likewise seeking to fulfill the desires of their ego. That, that, that is what, what, what he meant. He didn't mean other people are hellish. But, we, but, but hell, the state of, of profound dissatisfaction, is to some degree created by a world in which we are inevitably um, embedded in situations of conflicting desires. Our desires conflicting with those of others. Our desire to be nice, peaceful, Buddhist-types and yet all sorts of things interfere with that happening and we have to recognize that that is the nature of a of an impermanent changing world a society that is animated by conflicting desires everybody's conflicting desires can be equally good but they may not agree with ours that is the a problem So again, it's this sense, and this is another way I think we can understand Dukkha, that we're not going to achieve perfection and permanence in this conditioned world. Conditioned experience just doesn't do that. It's not the place to look for it. But unfortunately, at least for the Buddha, there's nowhere else to look for it either. There's no kind of other reality, a heaven, Or some sort of, uh, well, even the heavens in Buddhism are considered to be imperfect. Nirvana. Again, what Nirvana has to mean in the end, simply not getting born again. So the only way to, as it were, to achieve any kind of lasting well-being is to get rid of being. And that is the classical Buddhist view. One should make no bones about that as my, one of my Tibetan teachers you, you used to say, no head, no headache. <laughs> 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 and so when we talk about the end of suffering in, the, in these classical texts, it is about the end of being born, the end of having a body, the end of being in a world. But since I'm not concerned, and I don't think the Buddha was basically terribly concerned with future lives and rebirth, we're having to apply these ideas to the here and now. In other words, we are in an imperfect world. That doesn't mean that we don't experience great joy, great satisfaction. And in fact, one of the ironies or paradoxes perhaps of this injunction about fully no suffering as the beginning to enter the Four Noble Truths, we have to also bear in mind what the Buddha says about the whole practice of the Four Truths and he says, I think this is in your handout, I do not say that the breakthrough to the Four Noble Truths is accompanied by suffering or displeasure. Okay, so he's saying fully no suffering, but that is not accompanied by suffering or displeasure. It is accompanied only by happiness and joy. Now, so what's going on here? Buddhism is often somehow dismissed and, and, and criticized for putting so much emphasis on suffering. And yet here we have the Buddha saying, if you really knew suffering, that will bring you joy. That's a difficult idea to grasp. I think what he's saying, I agree with this by either way, I think it's very true, is that if we were really honest with ourselves if we led a life in which we we deeply accepted the conditions of the world in which we live with all of the pain all of the suffering all of the misery but if we were able to do that wholeheartedly and authentically if we were able to embrace that condition there would be accompanying that a sense of truth, a sense of, of, of realism, a, a sense of no longer pretending that things are otherwise. And that is the source of a much deeper sense of well-being, that our existence is grounded now in something real rather than something fantastical and unrealizable. And that brings a degree of contentment Again, the same term, contentment with food, contentment with lodging, delight in the practice. That a a deeper kind of, of satisfaction is experienced by recognizing that nothing in this world is satisfactory. The only person, perhaps, who is truly happy is the one who realizes that this world cannot provide happiness. It's paradox total paradox and again I think the only way to really determine whether that's true or not is to try it out look into your own life look at those moments in which you have felt most most authentic in which you have felt most true to being human in the deepest sense it's very often at times of tragedy at times of crisis for example when Someone close to you has died. We've all had this experience. And we probably know, although we may not acknowledge it, that in the days that follow death of a loved one, people drop their petty concerns and enter into an almost contemplative seriousness that life now has revealed itself as it is and although it might lead to grief and to bereavement it also leads curiously to a deeper sense of connection with others that is much more real than the superficial interactions we often get caught up in that suffering is the great leveller that there's no friend or enemy or. democrat or republican in dukkha dukkha equalizes dukkha makes us realize our common humanity and I've, I've, I've in my experience of going through mourning especially the days after a death and being involved in the preparations for the funeral and then the funeral itself and so on I'm aware that when all that stops, I feel as though I've lost something rather important. I begin to miss it. The kind of seriousness and openness and honesty that moments of crisis can bring to people. Uh, it's often reported, my mother is a good example of this, that the time that really in which she feel that felt the most alive and the most happy in a way, was during the Second World War, when her life was, and the culture, the society, was potentially going to be destroyed, and that people came together, worked together to defeat the forces, in this case, of Nazi Germany. And I noticed this as a child, I notice it even today, that when she recollects what Times in her life were the most meaningful and also the most happy, were those when there was the greatest risk, the greatest danger. It's adversity that so often brings out the best in us. And this, I think, is all a way of circling around this idea of fully knowing Dukkha. It's trying to not just wait for times of adversity but actually to recognize that we can live more and more from that kind of depth in our lives. And the practice of the Dhamma in all aspects, the way we think about it, the way we meditate, the way we interact through our speech and our work, all of this can be brought into this uh, process of learning to live at a greater level of depth and authenticity and I think the four truths describe a process whereby this happens so that we have um, this fully knowing dukkha in all of these different ways that I've tried to to suggest it and that begins to change our very relationship to the world itself. Just as in the case of when we're united in grief or mourning or adversity, the pettiness of our concerns evaporates. In the same way, if we were more and more uh, aware in each moment of our birth, sickness, aging, death. This is how the Buddha describes at the very outset the first noble truth then we'd start, as it were, to relate to the world in a way that would no longer be driven by craving, by a sense of lack, by wanting something else. And the the implication here seems to be that it's because we do not live deeply that we become the victims of craving and grasping and trying to create something else to to, to fill that gap. In dukkha, there is no gap, in a way. The, the, that is, in a sense, it, it is an embrace. It, the, the Buddha says, dukkha parinya, fully know." Again, I would take that not to just mean cognitively, but also in the sense of embracing something. Uh, in French, you have a distinction between savoir, and connaître, savoir means to know something like a fact, information, to know that Paris is the capital of France, but connaître means to know another person, it also means for example connaître le chemin, to know the way, to know the path, that's something you connaître, you don't savoir that. Unfortunately in English this has been lost. But I think uh, this uh, knowing here is more in the sense of the way we know another person, we know a path, we know a place. There's an intimacy entailed in this knowing that's not conceptual or cognitive. And as we um, embrace the world, we do so affectively, But fully knowing dukkha is also not just being aware of my own pain, my own suffering, my own discontent, but as the priorities of your ego begin to wear away a bit, you become more and more open and more and more sensitized to the pain of others, the pain of the world. So the practice of compassion or loving-kindness, is not something that is a kind of result of doing lots of meditation, or something that you do at the end of the retreat, as we normally do. But rather it's something that's implicit in the first noble truth. To fully know dukkha means also to open oneself empathetically to others. So that your sense of, of us expands to the degree to which your self-centeredness diminishes. It goes hand in hand. Now if one really begins to live in that way, then you don't have to somehow suppress or, or get rid of or, or struggle to destroy your attachments and your cravings and your fears and your hatreds and so forth they, they cease to have any ground on which to stand and this is how I think the first truth leads organically and naturally to the second if you fully know Dukkha if you embrace Dukkha if you are intimate with Dukkha your yours and that of all others then there's less and less room for for craving and greed and so on to operate. And let's just have a quick look at the Buddha's own definition of craving. He says craving is repetitive, this is in your text, it wallows in attachment and greed, obsessively indulging in this and that. It is a craving for stimulation, a craving for existence and a craving for non-existence. In other words, when things really go bad, you think, let's end it all. So, craving is not equivalent to desire. Craving is a very specific type of wanting things to be a certain way that the Buddha regards as unrealistic, premised on a sense of lack, and something that will go on eternally if we don't interrupt it. It's repetitive. It's what drives, in in classical Buddhist cosmology, the cycle of birth and death. But in other words, psychologically, the cycle of repetitive habitual behavior. It just keeps going round round and round and round and round and round. We don't get anywhere. It's a circle as opposed to a path. We never step out of what is already known. We just want to repeat. So the fully knowing of dukkha is that which leads to the letting go or the falling away or the dropping away of that repetitive, cyclical, habitual attachment, greed, fear, anger, hatred. Those repetitive cycles of behavior. And this is really what needs to be the case if we are to truly embark on a way of life, apart. The second truth, therefore, can now quite easily be understood as the precondition for the third. The third truth, as the Buddha describes it, he says this is cessation, and the definition of cessation is the traceless fading away and cessation of that craving, the letting go and abandoning of it, freedom and independence from it. Now, in the, in the traditional way in which the Four Truths are presented, crave, the em, craving is emphasized and defined, not defined, but, but described as the cause of suffering, the origin of suffering. Personally, I think the problem with craving is not that it's the cause of suffering. I mean, sometimes it obviously is. But the problem with craving is that it prevents us from entering the path. It's the block. It's the impediment. It's the deepest kind of cyclical habitual neurosis that keeps us stuck in one place and prevents Mm. the free movement of the mind, of our lives, to open up into a new way of life. Or, as the classical metaphor says, it prevents us from entering the stream. It's only when craving stops, and again craving can only stop if it is let go of, and I believe it can only be let go of when we totally embrace dukkha. When craving stops, even momentarily, or when we realize that we are free not to be driven by greed and hatred and craving and so on, then we can enter or we don't. we don't, We don't. it's not so much a choice, then we enter another way of life, which is described as the Eightfold Path. I'm going to look at this in the talk, the last talk in this series. I'm going to look at what the Buddha says about entering the stream. And you have in your handout a number of texts that refer to that. But the point is that... Um, the, the aim of the four truths is to move from one to two to three to four. It's the eightfold path that is the aim of the practice and not the third truth, nirvana. Nirvana means simply the stopping of these habits that enables us to live more fully in this world here and now. Again, may, many Buddhists may not agree with that interpretation. That's their problem. <laughs> <laughs> I think the problem you see with classical Buddhism is premised on this multi-life view, which has at its end the cessation of birth and death, which is called nirvana in the deepest sense, the stopping of birth and death. In the pragmatic, practical, this-life sense, nirvana is the experience of no longer being driven by greed and hatred and delusion. It's that inner freedom from those impulsions, from those instincts, from those drives, those moments in which we really know for ourselves, or as the Buddha says, as we experience, as we see with our own eyes, that we are not beholden to such things. They do not need to determine our thoughts, our words, our acts. He's also sufficiently astute, a psychologist, to realize that just by having one such experience of that, let's say in meditation, that is not going to transform us from that point on into someone who never craves again. He knows that that's not the case. That These forces are so deeply embedded within our, I would say, our neurobiology. Classical Buddhism would say karma from infinite past lives, but it comes down to exactly the same thing. (coughs) These things are around to stay. They're not going to be just cut off and they're going to disappear. We're going to have to live with our shadow side as long as we're in this body. And so to fantasize about discarding it, I think, is unrealistic. It's about how do we live with it? How do we live with Mara rather than try to destroy Mara? Now, I'd like to just uh, conclude this with um, another metaphor that the Buddha uses. Um, I think it's in your handout. The Buddha compares someone who has, um, who has embodied or grasped, fully grasped, these four noble truths to a stone column 16 feet high, half of which is sunk in the ground and half of which stands above it. Again, a very, very striking image. A stone column, 16 feet high, perhaps it's 16 yards high, I'm not sure, I don't know what the Pali word is, but 16 measures high, half of which is sunk in the ground, and half of which stands above it. Now, why 16? Eight above ground, eight below. The text doesn't clarify that, but it would seem likely, I think, that this refers to the Eightfold Path. It implies that a person who has grasped the Four Noble Truths has embodied in their lives these, you know, this path, but half of it is invisible. Half of it is below ground, and half of it is above ground. Again, like all good metaphors, this allows us to uh, imagine. One uh, obvious um, implication of this is that a person who is grounded in the four noble truths has achieved a kind of existential depth and weight. And as the Buddha himself says, he says in the same metaphor, that someone who has not grasped the four truths is like a tuft of cotton wool or kapok. And whichever way the wind blows, that person will be blown off with it. So in other words, the the, 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 the embodiment of the four truths is achieving a kind of stability in one's life, a rootedness in the earth. The person who is like a tuft of cotton wool or kapok, the Buddha says, is someone who, would, who, who, who will look up at the face of another Brahmin or ascetic and think, oh, now this worthy one is surely one who knows, who really sees. And who's not had that experience? Of, of the latest guru on the block, um, we are drawn sometimes like moths to a flame, constantly looking for someone who is going to reveal the truth to us. But a person who the Buddha compares to this stone column does not shake, quake, or tremble and has at that point no inclination to keep chasing after some uh, passing teacher or doctrine. But their lives are now settled and established in this particular vision. In other words, they've achieved a kind of autonomy, and independence. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to this idea when we look at the, at the, at the, at the idea of entering the stream, which again um, emphasizes um, autonomy, becoming independent of others. But I think that's probably a good point to conclude on this morning. And tomorrow, I will look at um, the whole question of... Um, of belief, of uh, theism and atheism, of the Buddha's understanding of uh, or the Buddha's sense of the idea that there is some kind of transcendent absolute reality somewhere and consider how we can practice this teaching in a purely secular manner without recourse to any transcendental religious beliefs and then on the final talk I'll return to the experience of entering the stream thank you